Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. Once again, good morning. Welcome to Community Christian Church. It's so good to have you with us. How are you feeling today? You look good. You're smiling at me. Why don't you turn to the person next to you or someone near you and give them that smile? Maybe it's the first time they're receiving a smile. If you're at home, why don't you smile at your family members? As we begin this morning, what I'd like to do is ask you a question. When you hear the word sermon, S-E-R-M-O-N, sermon, what comes to mind? What do you think of? Well, if you look sermon up in the Bible, it says a religious talk based on a Bible passage normally given in church. A second definition is a long or tedious admonition, lecture, or rebuke. Tedious, in this sense, usually means dull and boring. Come on, is that what you think? Is that what we do from week to week? Bore you to tears? Some of you are saying no, and I appreciate your support. Others are pretty quiet right about now. Here at our church, we work extremely hard on our sermons. As you well know, our regular speakers, they put a lot of time and effort into preparation. Personally, it still takes me 15 to 20 hours to be ready to stand up in front of you. But here's the truth. Regardless of the preparation, we know without the anointing and the equipping of the Holy Spirit, the best that we can do is a collection of words and thoughts. And maybe we can share a Bible verse, tell a story, and even make you laugh from time to time. But unless the Spirit of the living God helps the sermon come alive, how I many you know we labor in vain who preach it? You see, it's not so much what we say, it's what the Spirit of the Lord says through us. That's what's most important. And that's why every time we gather together, our number one prayer is for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to be here with us, making his word come alive, allowing us to receive from him. And I bring it up this morning because as we've announced for several weeks now, starting today and for the next 12 weeks, we're going to be talking about the greatest and most powerful sermon ever preached. And a few of you asked if that was one of my old sermons. The answer is no. I wish it were. The greatest sermon that I'm referring to is what the Bible calls the Sermon on the Mount, an absolute masterpiece by Jesus. And again, we're going to spend the entire summer, June, July, and August, in that sermon, we're calling it Summer on the Mount, and we're praying it's going to be the summer of summers here at our church. And this morning in lesson number one, as we introduce the series, I want to give you a comprehensive introduction, because this one sermon is life-changing. I want you to, to know, I want you to hear me say, the whole reason Jesus prepared it, and the whole reason he preached it, was so that we could be transformed. And so when we read the sermon, we have to pay attention carefully to what Jesus was saying. 
I'm sorry to say that many Christian people, they read right over the top of the sermon. We spend a lot of time reading it, but we don't really study it. We don't really understand what it has to say. For the most part, we know uh, the sermon. We're familiar with it. In fact, we even have little phrases and short sayings that we repeat that come right from the sermon. Statements like, turn the other cheek, or go the extra mile, or we are the salt of the earth. And so again, we're familiar with the sermon. Unfortunately, we struggle with the content. Theologian John R. W. Stott put it this way, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. Can you believe that? The words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are the least obeyed, according to this theologian. And the reason we have such a hard time with this sermon is because when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he set the believer bar extremely high. And I dare say at the top run. But how many know he did it on purpose? It wasn't an accident. In fact, if you watched any of the Chosen uh, series, you know that they projected or presented this sermon as Jesus spending a lot of time on it. And I believe he did. You see, this one sermon is the Christian manifesto. Everything else that Jesus taught us, it comes from this sermon. It's what separates the church of Jesus Christ and Christianity apart from all the others. And please understand, just like the rest of the Bible, the ongoing theme of the Sermon on the Mount is to come out from among them and be separate, to be set apart. Not to think that we're better than everyone else. I'm not talking about arrogance, but definitely about a difference. How I many you know Jesus wanted us to be different? And he made it crystal clear over and over again. He said, don't be like them. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the teachers of the law or the hypocrites or the pagans. In essence, Jesus called his disciples and his followers to a place of sanctification and holiness. That's what set apart means. And right in the middle of the sermon, right around Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, Jesus made a statement. He said, be perfect, therefore, Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. That word perfect in the Greek is the word teleos. And it does not mean sinlessness or moral perfection. That's what we think of when we hear that word. But in all actuality, this particular word perfect, it means completeness, wholeness, and spiritual maturity. You see, oftentimes when we read Matthew 5, 48, and we hear Jesus use words like perfection, immediately we check out. Because we think he can't be talking about us. He has to be talking about the spiritual elite. You know, people like Pastor Dan or Pastor Therese. <laughs> Definitely not me. I mean, I have so many faults and so many hang-ups and failures. There is no way that Jesus could ever ask me to be perfect. 
And you're absolutely right. We are not going to get to the place of spiritual perfection in this lifetime. But what Jesus was communicating to us is the goal of maturity. And that has to be something that we all go after. We have to set our hearts on that target, the bullseye. And that's precisely what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 11. He said, aim for perfection. And so when Jesus said, I want you to be perfect, he's talking about this desire on our part to be spiritually mature and to grow in our faith. Now, listen very carefully to me, because this is extremely important. As we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to repeat this a couple of times during this series because you're going to have to get this into your mind. As we read through these verses and we come under conviction, you're going to have to know this. The Sermon on the Mount is not a how-to-get-saved sermon. I'm going to say that again. The Sermon on the Mount is not a how-to-get-saved sermon. With the sermon, Jesus didn't say, if you don't do what I tell you, if you don't obey my instructions, then you're going to be condemned and thrown in the lake of fire. He didn't preach that. He did, however, preach that if you follow the instructions in the Sermon on the Mount, you will be blessed. Not only will you be blessed, but you will bless others around you. And then he also taught, regardless of what comes your way, doesn't matter how many storms, how much adversity you face, your spiritual house will stand. That's what Jesus taught. That's the promise. That's the payoff. Your house will stand if you follow this instruction that Jesus gave to us. But again, it's not a how to get saved sermon. John 3.16 tells us how to get saved. That's a different sermon, not found in the Sermon on the Mount. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That verse tells us how to get saved. Romans 10.9 tells us how to get saved. That's a salvation verse, another sermon on salvation. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In John 14.6, Jesus tells us, he reveals to us the way of salvation. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets saved except through me. One more, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That gives us salvation inside. It's another salvation sermon. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I just gave you four powerful salvation messages or four uh, salvation verses. And after you get saved, after you follow these four verses that I just gave to you, after you follow this idea of putting your trust in Jesus and, and bowing your knee at the cross, after you get saved, remember what Romans 8, 1 and 2 says. One of you do. You nodded. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, there is therefore now how much condemnation? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has what? Set me free from the law of sin and death. That means that unlike the law of Moses, the law of sin and death, the Sermon on the Mount does not condemn us. Say that. The Sermon on the Mount does not condemn me. 
One more time. The Sermon on the Mount does not condemn me. That's not the reason why Jesus preached it. It's not to shame us. It's not to humiliate us or make us feel like a failure. That is not the goal of the sermon. The words of Jesus in this sermon are a blueprint for Christian living. And even though as you read it, it might be a shock to the system, it's the way God wants us to live. And just like everything else that God requires of us, how many of you know you need a little grace? We need grace, some of us a lot of grace, sprinkled into every command that God gives to us. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, his grace is sufficient for us. That means that we have been given enough grace to get us to the place where we can obey this sermon. With God's help, with his grace, and with the right attitude, we can live like we're supposed to, with kingdom of heaven mindsets and attitudes. How many of you want that? Amen. I sure do, because that's what Jesus expects from us. He wants us to live that way. And the last time I checked, Philippians 4.13 says, I can. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. How many of you know you're in that group? You can do it too. All right. It was sometime during the earthly ministry of Jesus when he gathered his disciples together, and this was just one of those times that Jesus was meeting with his disciples. Nobody else was around. And Jesus asked them a question. He said, who do men say that I am? In other words, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? I don't think he was insecure. He just wanted to know what they, what they knew. The disciples responded and said, well, some people think you're John the Baptist, that you're walking in the spirit of Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus shook his head and said, okay, what do you think? Who do you say that I am? And it was Simon Peter who raised his hand and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus was stunned by his response. And he turned to Peter and he said, there is absolutely no way that you could have known that by yourself. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. My Father in heaven, he gave you that insight and that revelation. And so, Peter, I guess you're the guy. I'm going to set you up for greatness, Peter. And I'm going to establish my church through you. And how many of you know, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. That's what he said to Peter. And a short time later, on the day of Pentecost, just about a month and a half after the resurrection of Jesus, that prophetic word came to pass. It came to fruition, and Simon Peter came forward. On that occasion, on the day of Pentecost, he preached his very first sermon. It was a powerful one. And a bunch of people got saved. They got baptized too. 3,000 people. And on that day, Peter launched his own evangelistic ministry. And who better than Peter? I mean, he was with Jesus and was an eyewitness of all that Jesus did. He was one of three guys, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus took everywhere. And Peter was always right in the middle of the action. And so for the next 35 years, how long? 
35 years, Peter evangelized the entire region. He went throughout the districts of Galilee telling the story of Jesus. And he would tell it to multitudes, and he would tell it to handfuls of people, and he would go to home groups, and he would just tell everything he knew about Jesus. He would review the teachings, he would talk about the miracles, and he would also give eyewitness testimony of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He did that for 35 years after Jesus returned to heaven. And right around A.D. 64, a ruthless and cold-blooded Roman emperor by the name of Nero got his grubby hands on Peter, and he threw him in prison, locked him up in chains, and held him there for several months. You see, Nero hated Christians, and he had a determination to once and for all eliminate Christianity from the face of the earth. And so he got a hold of the Christian leader, Paul, uh, Peter, and he threw him in prison. And history tells us in that dark and dingy prison cell, before Peter was finally executed, crucified upside down, he told his story one more time. He had been telling the stories of Jesus for 35 years. One more to go. But this time it wasn't to the masses or the multitudes. It wasn't even to a small company of Roman soldiers. He told his story to an audience of one. His name was John Mark. We know him as Mark. Because Mark was a companion of Simon Peter's, he was allowed to visit with him in the prison cell. And there, just before Peter was executed, he laid it all out, he laid the story out, and Mark, John Mark wrote it all down. And here it is 2,000 years later, 2,000 plus years, and we're still reading that same story that Peter told on that occasion. It's called the Gospel of Mark. And when Peter articulated that gospel to John Mark, he said, I don't know how much time we have, so let's get started with the project. And let's get it all down on paper. And immediately, Peter went right to the main event. When you read the Gospel of Mark, it's different than some of the other synoptic Gospels. He doesn't mention the story of Jesus' birth at all. Doesn't tell us about Mary and Joseph and their journey. Doesn't let us know that Jesus had to be born in the manger because there's no room in the end. Doesn't talk about the angel. He doesn't talk about the wise men or the magi. He gets right to the point. And in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, Mark, this is the way I want you to begin your narrative. I want you to tell the story this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the what? The Son of God. Peter said, Mark, you write that down as we begin this story because that's who the story's all about. Don't call him rabbi, teacher, Healer, he's all of that, but he's the Messiah, the Son of God. That's who the Father revealed uh, to me. That, that, that's how I received Jesus, as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, Mark, I want you to make a big deal about that. Everybody needs to know he's the Son of God. And then a few verses later, again, Peter's dictating. He wrote this, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Afterward, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming 
the good news of God? Let's not forget it's good news. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is what Jesus came preaching. This is what was in his heart. Repent and believe the good news. Repent. Now, sometimes when we hear that word in the Gospels, we think that was the teaching and the preaching of John the Baptist, the, the oddball, the weird one. Don't, we don't have to pay attention to him. He was way out there. And you're absolutely right. John the Baptist had the ministry of repentance. In fact, he led the entire nation of Israel in a baptism of repentance. The, the anointing of the Lord was so strong upon him, everybody came to his baptism. But in addition to John the Baptist teaching about repentance, so did Jesus. Peter said so. And in chapter 1, the opening verses of this gospel, Peter said to John Mark, you write that down. I want everybody to know Jesus preached repentance. And in this context, Jesus was saying it's time for change. 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 Time to turn away from our sins and make a significant move toward God. This is what Jesus came preaching. Time to repent and believe the good news. Time to turn away from our sins and go after God with every ounce of strength that we have. And friend, I've been a believer for 48 years. 38 of those years I've been preaching the gospel message and I don't know a time in my life when the message of repentance is more imperative and more critical than it is today. It's time. It's time. Jesus came repenting, preaching repentance and saying it's time. It's time for the church, not the unchurched, not the unbeliever, not the heathen person. Not the one who's far from God, not the skeptic. It's time for, a, for the believers, the followers, the disciples of Jesus to make a move toward God, to understand that the Spirit of the Lord is speaking. And He wants us to repent. And what He's calling us to is so much more than a 60 second prayer where we bow our heads and we feel a little sorrowful and we say, Sorry, God. I know I'm a Christian. I know I shouldn't be acting that way. Feel pretty bad about that. I'll do better. He's after a lot more than that, friend. Because true repentance goes deeper than that. And repentance, Jesus' style, involves a deep dive into our hearts where we allow the conviction power of the Holy Spirit, something good to initiate wholesale changes in our lives, where we recognize that sin and overindulgence has moved so far out of balance, it's time for the pendulum to come back to the right place. And if you hear the Spirit of the Lord speaking today, revival is knocking at our door, the door of our hearts. But we, the believers, have to respond to God. We have to be willing to say, this is a message for me, not for everybody else, 
When Jesus came, he came preaching to me. He came asking me to repent and make change. Now, in Mark chapter 12, again, this is coming from Peter. We have the story of when one of the teachers of the law, that's, that's how the scripture describes it, a teacher of the law that came to Jesus and asked him, what is the greatest commandment that God ever gave to us? And Jesus, without hesitation, he quoted from an Old Testament book, the book of Deuteronomy, and he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you'll love the Lord with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and then you know what's coming. Jesus said, there's a second commandment. It's like the first. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus answered the question like that, the teacher of the law responded right back to Jesus. It's recorded in Mark chapter 12, verses 32 and 34. Here's what he said. He said, Jesus, you are right. As if Jesus could be wrong. But you are right in saying God is one and there's no other but him. And to love him with all of your heart, with all of your understanding and all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Teacher of the law said that. And when Jesus saw he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, when you read this story carefully, read, read between the lines, you'll find out that Jesus was actually surprised by the teacher of the law's response. Do you have any idea how shocking and unconventional it was for a teacher of the law at that time to think there was anything else more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices? That was their life. That's what the Jewish religion was all about. That's all they did was focus in on animal sacrifices and burnt offerings and the letter of the law. But with the coming of Jesus, great spiritual change was on the horizon. Jesus said the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's finally at the door. And that's the main message that Jesus is attempting to communicate with the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he wanted us to know. That it was time to make a much needed lifestyle change. It was time to put away all of the religion and everything that we had been taught and all the things that we've been going through the motions of and understand that God had a better plan. He had something new. He called it the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven living. Exactly the way God wants us to live today. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, that's how God wants us to live today. We're not going through this just for historic reasons. We're not going through the Sermon on the Mount just to say, well, that, that was nice for that generation. This is God's word to us today. Challenging as it is. But Jesus showed us the way. He gave us great insight into the heart of the Father, something the people had never seen or experienced before. And Jesus practiced what he preached he made the Christian message compelling and attractive. People wanted it because it was real. It was powerful. He spoke with authority. That's why the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the publicans and the sinners, people who wouldn't have been caught dead in a the synagogue, they followed Jesus. 
They wanted to be where he was at. They loved him. And whenever he preached, people gathered. They flocked, multitudes and crowds of people flocked together to hear him. Why? Because he was different than the other religious leaders. He sounded different because his heart was different. He came to reveal kingdom of heaven principles. He had a different approach. He had a different message. He had a different way of communicating. And that's what we're going to be looking at this entire summer because I believe that's the way that God wants us to live. So let's bow our heads and prepare for communion. Father, we take just a couple of moments this morning to focus our attention upon the meaning of repentance. What does that mean for me? Holy Spirit of God, we thank you for conviction. Conviction is good. It leads us closer to you. You are not a condemning God. You're not a God who makes us feel unworthy. Sometimes we feel that way, but it's not because of you. You only draw us to yourself. And Lord, you are speaking to your church, not just community Christian, but you are speaking to your whole church. And you're saying today is a new day. It's a day of change. It's a day to repent and believe the good news. And Lord, I pray that your good news would explode in our hearts, that we wouldn't leave feeling heavy or discouraged or condemned, but we would know that there's a God in heaven who loves us so much that you are drawing us to yourself. Your word says when we take a step towards you, you take a step toward us. And so far, that's what we've been hearing, Lord. That's the spiritual message of this service, is to open our hearts to you. I pray you would move in these moments, Lord. Amen. We're going to gather around the communion table in just a few minutes, but before we do, and, and you don't have to have the emblems in your possession just yet, I want to lead you through a special activity before we do that. So just put the bread and the cup aside. The scripture tells us it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke the bread, he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then after supper it ended, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks. He passed the cup to his disciples. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death till he comes. Jesus appealed to his disciples on that occasion when he instituted the communion supper, asking them to remember what he had done, to remember his sacrifice on the cross. He asked them twice, not once, twice. I could just imagine Jesus communicating to his disciples, you, you probably don't understand what's going on right now. You don't, you don't get it all, but... 
if you don't rehearse what I did for you, Jesus was telling me, if you don't call to mind my sacrifice, chances are you're going to find yourself where you lose a little bit of your zeal, a little bit of your, of your passion. And maybe one day you're going to wonder, how did, how, did I, how did I get that far off track? Jesus said, the way you stay in tune is to remember what I've done for you. As painful as recall my sacrifice. Remember the love that I had for you when I went to the cross. I'm wondering this morning, for those of you who are in the room, those who might be watching or listening to me, if you would be willing to admit that maybe over the months and years you've lost a little of your spiritual passion. Maybe there was a time in your life where you felt closer to God. And you might say, Tony, there was a time when I had this really tight connection with God. I mean, it was close. It was intimate. I just knew that God was right by my side, at my right hand. All I had to do was quote a verse of scripture, say a prayer, put on a worship song, and I would sense his presence. It'd be like a cloud filling the entire room but I can't explain it. I don't know how to put it in words. It's just like God doesn't seem to be that close anymore. In fact, there seems to be this distance between me and God, and I I just can't get back to that place of just connecting with God. You know, if you would say that and be honest, I want you to know you're not alone. Over the last couple of years, I've heard that same scenario in counseling and in conversation with people time and time again. And honestly, I've been there. Do you know, I firmly believe it's not because God has pulled back from us. I don't think God distanced himself from us or separates himself from us. The scripture says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loves us with an everlasting love. If there's a distance between us and God, I'm going to have to say maybe we've pulled back. And I don't think it's intentional on our parts. I don't think we did it purposely. Maybe life in general, maybe the cares of this world, the culture, all the evils around us. Being consumed with worry and doubt and fear and what's going to happen, the uncertainties of life, it just kind of pushed us out of the way. And as we get started here with this summer series and as we've been leading up just really trying to encourage you to go after God if you want your passion back you can get it back I mean there's been times when I've been far from God and there's times when I feel like really close if you want your passion back it's going to cost you something you can get it back but you're going to have to give something up you're going to have to surrender something You're going to have to make this a top priority in your life. So here's what I'd like us to do. Right before we receive communion, in the seat back pockets in front of you, you're going to find a little card. Go ahead and reach out. Grab one of those cards. It's called, I Want My Passion Back. You might have to slip down the row in order to get it. Those of you at home, you can follow along. Uh, We'll display this card on the screen for you. It has a few statements there. 
I'm plagued with fear. My Christian disciplines have slipped. I've allowed the culture to distract me. I'm involved in unhealthy behavior. I know it, just can't break it. I have unforgiveness in my heart. I've been hurt real bad, not been able to get healing for that. I desire closeness with God or I'm disappointed with unanswered prayer. Just a few here, maybe none of these apply to you. Maybe they all do. I'm going to ask you to honestly check the ones that you can relate to. There's a pen around you somewhere. Maybe you have to wait your turn and just use the pen. Maybe you want to write something in. Those of you at home can maybe write it down on a slip of paper. And then what I'm going to ask you to do in just a few moments right after I pray is we're going to start a worship song. And this paper that you're holding in your hand it is a sticky back. There's a little slip of paper at the top. You can just pull it down like that and it reveals a sticky portion. I already filled mine out. And then I want you to do is get out of your seat and come and attach it to the base of the cross. You might want to take a picture of it with your phone after you fill it out. Or remember, write it down so you know what you're going after. And these are the things this summer that we are going to work on individually. If you want to deal with one of these things, it's going to cost you something. And so, Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit moving in our hearts right now. Sometimes we need just a little boost to get us to take that step. Lord, I pray that this would be that boost, that we could see it in print, that we could write it down, that this would be that area of our lives that we would repent of and surrender to you. Lord, I want my passion back. I want a heart for God. I don't want to get caught up in the overindulgence of this culture. I don't want to allow my faith to slip through the cracks. I want a strong faith, Lord. I want to be built up in my most holy faith. I I pray that would be the prayer of the people today, Lord. And just ask that you would move in a very special way among us. Again, after we start this song, you're free to get out of your seat. We're not going to do this in any systematic way. You just randomly get out of your seat. You can come and attach. I'd like everyone to do it. You can come and attach your papers to the cross and then you can go back to your seat and you can have communion personally, just you and God. Just spend a few moments and have communion. I look at this here and it's hard not to be emotional what comes to mind is those verses in Isaiah Isaiah 53 that tell us he was wounded for our transgressions and our sins he was bruised for our iniquities all of our mistakes he carried our troubles our sorrows and by his wounds we're healed we can be healed we can grow in our faith we can get to a place, a different place than where we're at today. Thank you so much for your willingness to take this seriously and to bring these surrenders to the Lord. He receives everyone 
And I believe this is the start of the grace that we need to take another step toward him. Thank you for blessing our congregation with your response. Thank you at home for participating. Earlier during the video announcements, you saw bubbly Darlene talk about summer happenings. We have a lot of good things planned this summer. Uh, and as she mentioned, we put them all on a little refrigerator magnet. Make sure that you grab one of these on your way out. God bless you as you go. Have a great week.